This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast from March 4th, 2019. When someone writes a book on how to help the poor, you might think that you know where they are coming from politically, but you might be wrong. In this show, we have an interesting take on that. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up on today's podcast. But second, their inability to move to better housing means it locks them into sort of the ghetto areas, the areas with high crime, poor schools, fewer services. You want the poor to be able to move to better areas uh, of town. Might, might be nice, might be nice to, to make those into better housing. areas, wouldn't it? Well, that's right. And some of my other proposals will try to improve on those things. That's coming up shortly, but first I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. I saw a couple of things recently related to podcasts, or at least that might resonate with podcast listeners. One was a YouTube video that compared the market valuation of WeWork, the company that offers hot desking to remote workers. It compared them to Regis, a similar but much more established company now owned by the IWG Group. WeWork has a valuation of $47 billion dollars. WeWork have been advertising heavily on some podcasts. Hell, if they have that much money, I should be tapping them for ads on challenging opinions. Uh, Regis, by contrast, has a valuation of $4 billion. And get this, Regis does about 10 times more business than WeWork. Almost 10 times bigger, but less than one-tenth of the valuation. What's going on? Well, for one, WeWork has a far snazzier brand image. They're doing everything to appeal to millennials, but seriously, $47 billion? Does a hip graphic designer doing your website, along with serving moco frappa chapa lattes to your workers, does that justify a 100-fold increase in your valuation? I don't think so. The other difference is that WeWork has big money venture capital from SoftBank and others. That $47 billion valuation is based on an investment of $2 billion from them. The other investment that caught my eye recently was Spotify buying Gimlet Media, the podcast company behind Reply All, Science Versus, and the oh-so-self-referential Startup podcast. Get this, Spotify paid $230 million for Gimlet, a podcast producer that produces 25 podcasts, as well as some of what they call branded podcasts, which basically means corporate promotional videos without the video. Seriously, 
$230 million for 25 podcasts. That's nearly 10 million bucks each. I've got to see what Changing Opinions is worth. That's just two examples that touch on the world of podcasts. But there are lots of others, and they concentrate on tech, online, internet, millennial world type things. If you want a crazy valuation, it seems you need to have an app or a .com in your name or something. Take another comparison. Tesla. Market valuation, $70 billion. Compare that to BMW, market cap of less than $60 billion. You could say that Tesla makes electric cars. They're the future. Doesn't that justify a higher valuation? Hardly. In 2018, BMW made 142,000 electric cars. Tesla mostly made promises. Well, in 2018, they made 90,000 electric cars. That's right. BMW makes far more all-electric cars than Tesla, even though Tesla is valued far higher than BMW. And that's not counting the small matter that electric only accounts for 7% of BMW's output, and BMW is highly profitable. What's happening here? Quantitative easing. That's what. The Federal Reserve in the US, the European Central Bank, and to a lesser extent, other central banks around the world, for the past 10 years, they've been basically printing truckloads of money. It's not an exaggeration. It's probably an underestimate. You'd need fleets of dumper trucks to move the amounts that they've been printing. The objective was to use it to save the banks who might be going under if money was tight and the valuations of the assets behind their loan books were under pressure. What's surprising is that this ocean of money hasn't caused inflation. Mugabe in Zimbabwe and Maduro in Venezuela have crashed their economies into hyperinflation by printing a tiny fraction of that amount of paper money. There's almost no inflation at all in Western economies. How are they getting away with it? The difference is that this ocean of paper money isn't going to the general population. It's going to the financial system. In some aspects, it's propping up the banks. Think of that as you will. But it's clear that a lot of this money is sloshing around looking for a home somewhere it can be invested. You might think that's not a bad thing, investment in the economy, right? But look where it's going. It is massively inflating the value of companies like WeWork when any rational analysis says that you'd be much better off investing in Regis. The same business model for a tiny fraction of the cost gives you a much better return. It's clear that this huge amount of money going into the economy is being invested based on fads and hype. The point is that there is hyperinflation in the economy. It's not that we need a barrel full of cash to buy a loaf of bread, because the cash isn't being poured into the pockets of people looking to buy groceries. But we do need truckloads of money to buy very modest companies with a bit of buzz about them, because cash is being poured into the pockets of people who buy companies without bothering too much as to whether it's a good investment or not. 
This is a classic example of what economists call an inefficient use of resources. I'm not an economist, and I'm not a gambler either, but if I was, I'd bet that this won't end well. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Michael Tanner. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's just published a book called The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. Um, Michael, the Cato Institute would be seen very much as a right-leaning think tank. Uh, Surely you guys don't care what happens to the poor at all, do you? Well, I think that's the stereotype. Uh, First of all, I'd say we're not necessarily right-leaning. We're libertarian, which means we take limited government seriously. Uh, We believe strongly in civil liberties, for example. Uh, We are anti-militarist, but we also believe in small, limited government and fiscal discipline here at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, I do think that we all, as human beings, uh, have an obligation to help those who are most in need among us. If we believe, as I do, that every human being is of equal value and equal worth, then we have an obligation to help those who most need help. Mm-hmm. So you've written a book on how to do that. Uh, obviously, you've put an awful lot of research and uh, so forth into that book. So give me the contents in the book of the book in two or three sentences. Sure. I think both the left and the right have basically misdiagnosed the reasons for poverty. The right tends to blame the poor themselves. They tend to say the poor have made bad choices, bad decisions in their life, that they do, you need to graduate from school, get a job, not get pregnant until you get married, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. The left tends to blame society as a whole, discuss the idea that it's racism and gender-based discrimination and economic dislocation that forces people into poverty. Mm-hmm. I think both sides have something to them uh, in the sense that uh, you can't strip the poor of agency, pretend their choices don't matter, that uh, that there's no consequences from their decisions. But neither can you neglect the circumstances under which those choices and decisions are made. And we do have racism continuing in our society, and the women are discriminated against. And the economic, uh, the, the creative destruction of capitalism does leave some people behind. But both sides miss that there's a third villain in this in this. Uh, Tale, and that is the government itself, and that government policies often prevent the poor from becoming full participants in a growing economy, and that that's what we need to t- change first. Hey, give, give me a, an example. Well, I'm looking at some bullet points that, that you've written up about the book, and I note, uh, maybe we'll put a pin in it and come back to it in a moment, I note that one of them, you say, perhaps the first one, is reforming the criminal justice system and curtailing the war on drugs. I know a lot of people who'd be interested in that. But one that really caught my eye was making it easier for the poor to bank, save, borrow, and invest. Are you proposing some sort of regulations to force the banks to do business with people who they're not really interested in doing business with? Well, it's often the regulations that get in the way of their doing business with low-income people. Just to give you one example, we're so obsessed with the war on terror or with the idea of drug money laundering 
that we often impose very stringent regulations on opening bank accounts, mm -hmm. that you have to possess certain types of identification in order to open a bank account, many of which the poor don't have. About 20% of poor people lack proper IDs in order to be able to open banks. That forces them into sort of alternative methods of banking, uh, check cashing places, uh, pawn shops, things that may, uh, may in fact be These much more These high interest payday loan type things. Exactly. Uh, and if you lack the ability to save, you're often worse off in terms of being able to do other things that may help you get out of poverty in the long run. In addition, our various welfare programs often impose restrictions on how much you can have in terms of assets. We encourage you to consume. If you spend every penny of your welfare check, that's mm -hmm. fine with us. But if you put some of that money away so that you could send your kids to a better school someday, well, we're going to take away your check. Mm -hmm. That sort of is very wrong-headed. It's the wrong set of incentives that we want to set out. Okay, but address the point that essentially, if you're saying uh, make it easier for the poor to bank, if somebody's on minimum wage or not much more than minimum wage, a bank isn't really interested in servicing your uh, servicing your needs, are they? they? They're just not going to make that much money out of you unless they're one of these very highly predatory short-term high-interest loan places, which really uh, poor people should be staying well away from. Well, there's ways in which you can make it easier for poor people to bank. Uh, for example, that there is an underutilized tool called individual development accounts in which allows poor people to put money away uh, uh, with government guarantees and in some cases even government matches mm -hmm. that, allow, that people can use to save that money to send their kids to school or to buy tools for their uh, business if they want to start it or do other things of that nature. Often those accounts are too restrictive. They, they limit the ability of you to take the money out for things that may come up as immediate needs in your family. We need to loosen those restrictions. But those are, those are the type of programs that actually do some good. Okay. One other thing you list in your, your bullet points for m helping the poor, essentially, is bringing down the cost of housing. Do you mean bringing it down right across the board or bringing down the cost of perhaps low-income housing? Uh, explain that a bit. Well, sure. You want to bring it down right across the board because you want people to be able to move up into better houses. That opens up more housing available for the poor. Hmm. One of the things that happens uh, when you build more high-end housing is the people at the level just below that move into the high-end housing. The people below that move into the next level and so on, and that opens it up all the way down to the bottom. What I'm looking at here is two ways in which the high cost of housing hurts the poor. First, the poor spend a disproportionate amount of their income on housing, about 40% on average, which is a significant burden for a poor family. But second, their inability to move to better housing means it locks them into sort of the ghetto areas, the areas with high crime, poor schools, fewer services. You want the poor to be able to move to better areas uh, of town. Might, might be nice, might be nice to, to make those into better housing. areas, wouldn't it? Well, that's right, and some of my other proposals will try to improve on those things. But in the short term, at very least, poor people shouldn't be trapped in the area in which, in which they live. But we also often have to look at, again, government policies that drive up the cost of housing. Zoning laws, for example, can add as much as 50% to the cost of housing in communities like San Francisco and New York, mm -hmm. as much as 30% in communities like Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. These zoning laws often start off explicitly racial, uh, in nature, designed to uh, to keep uh, African Americans and other minorities out of white neighborhoods, and they still serve that function today. Okay, um, I'm quite interested in that. And you're talking about essentially liberalizing, removing zoning restrictions, removing 
a whole bunch of other uh, what you call regulations and red tape. But are, is there a danger that you're just going to allow people to build new ghettos? Well, when you look at the type of the regulations that I'm talking about specifically in here, one, for example, is requirements that you have multiple parking spaces for each new apartment that you create. Hmm. San Francisco, for example, requires that you have one and a half parking spaces for every apartment. Uh, that is strictly sort of snob zoning. It's designed to keep low-income neighborhoods out or low-income apartment complexes out of uh, sort of the affluent neighborhoods. It's, it's, a, it's a NIMBY, not-in-my-backyard approach. Okay, okay, that's a fair criticism. But would you include in that, for example, uh, building standard requirements, you know, requirements as to uh, the size of rooms and the, the height of ceilings, those type of things? Because if you don't, there is a danger that people are just going to throw up the lowest quality possible housing and, and extract the highest rent they can from it well I, again i think that if you have more housing you're going to have more competition and it's going to prevent people from being able to simply squeeze rents down as little as you can, as they can uh, if you have a housing shortage is simply supply and demand that, that steps in here and it's going to drive up the cost of housing rents are going to be much higher than if you have a housing surplus yeah, I, 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 I understand. I understand that. that. But, but, but there's, as I see it, and perhaps you are more qualified in economics than I am, but as I see it, the housing market has particular difficulties because supply is really quite inelastic in the sense that it takes quite a long time to build houses and uh, they've stopped making the land, which is essentially the resource that housing is made out of. And also, people don't really have the flexibility to withdraw from the market if they don't like what's on offer. You can stop buying, you know, lots of different products if you don't like them. You can't really stop living in a house unless you're in, in really dire circumstances. Well, no, and then that that's part of the problem is that people uh, are sort of subject to the uh, the the rent whims of the what the rents are right now, and that's why I want to bring down the rents. But I do think that you can create high-density housing uh, much quicker than we do now, right now. Right now, we basically block high-density building, particularly mm-hmm. in areas around uh, transportation mode uh, nodes and, and areas where the poor would benefit most from the availability of more housing. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that the the benefits of high density, which can also be high quality, but the benefits of high quality, high density are probably often not recognized. One other thing in your list of uh, suggestions is reforming education to give more control and choice to parents. Reforming education, I'm on board. Yeah, sure. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do. um, And the investment in education pays back over the lifetime of, of that pupil many fold. But giving choice to parents, are you sure that parents want choice? Because I don't think they do. Because, you know, if you have a good school and a bad school, which of the parents are going to choose the bad school? Well, often you don't have a good school and a bad school. You simply have a bad school mm-hmm. and you're not allowed to go to the good school. In some states in the, in the United States, for example, it is actually a felony to send your child to a school outside of your assigned school district. In New mm-hmm. Jersey, you can be punished by up to five years in jail for committing that crime. Now, if you live in an area where all the schools are basically... Sure, yeah, but ad- address the point, to Michael. Michael, stuff. address the point of choice. The, 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 this, that choice in education tends sometimes to be 
a dog whistle to perhaps the better connected, maybe a little bit better off people to say, we can let you take your uh, nice, you know, kids with their hair combed properly and who do their homework away from all those rough kids because you don't want them hanging around with the, the, the poor kids. But choice is well, really a misnomer. It, it, yes, but and and that is encouraged and, 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 in, they, they by some politicians. Now, they, yes, it, it does happen. Sure. It does happen to a significant extent now. But it's not something that benefits society. Choice in education may benefit one uh, one child or one family over another, but that's a zero sum game. In the choice in education is really not something that benefits society. What you want is better schools full stop, isn't it? Well, the fir- first of all, what uh, I would uh, take issue with the idea that helping even one family is not a good thing. Uh, I-, I think that right now what we have is if you're low income or if you're a minority family, you are often stuck with schools that underperform and that don't educate your children, that have high violence rates, mm-hmm. and simply getting you out of, getting them out of there and giving them the same opportunities for choice that wealthy families have today uh, is a good thing, or it's equalizing the playing field, if you will. Second, uh, I think that it does benefit society overall because it creates competition in the schools, uh, in the school marketplace, and that will force innovation. Right now, we have very little innovation in education. We basically have one, mon- you know, one monopoly that imposes its will across the board, and we know from other businesses, other industries, other things that that monopolies seldom provide good customer service at a low cost. That's possibly true, but that is mostly true of services and products where the consumer A can and B has a record of choosing between different suppliers. And that's not something that really can happen in education. And in any case, when, well, first of all, when you say that it allows some kid to get out to go to a better school, and that may well be true, and that's certainly better for that kid and their family, but the totality of that for society is that every plus that you like that that you mention is balanced by a minus of less funds and and less uh, initiative going into uh, the remaining bad schools i just can't see how choice specifically benefits society as a whole in education I, I can understand that you can give, you know, examples of the people who uh, win on the upswing, but that's uh, that's a zero sum game, isn't it? Well, no, because if you create a new school, a new type of educational system that actually uh, benefits children and improves education, then you then uh, customers, parents, children would flock to you for that better outcome. And we would see more innovation in the education system. Today, we largely have an education system that exists to serve the, the uh, administrators and the teachers, not to provide better services for its customers. And it's not a question of money. The school systems that actually provide, pay for the most per student in the United States are school systems like Chicago and Baltimore and mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., in LA that often provides some of the worst educational outcomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you look across the OECD, there is really no correlation. There's actually no correlation between spending or at least a very poor correlation between spending within the first world. Obviously, that breaks down when you go to, you know, uh, take into account third world countries. But within OECD countries, there's no real correlation between spending levels and the quality of the outcome. But there's definitely no correlation between choice 
and the quality of the outcome. And if you look at countries, you know, like Finland in particular or New Zealand, they have a one size fits all system. You, you know, every kid goes to the local school. And the effect of that is that the children of the elite are sitting in a class beside the ki- the kids of every other type of family and the elite parents make sure that those schools that their kids are going to are top quality and therefore the kid the schools that all the other kids going are going to are also top quality when the elite have the political clout to have choice, as you put it, to put their kids into other schools, that means those are the schools that are going to do well because they have the political clout and the economic clout to make it happen. It wouldn't the best way to ensure quality education be to make sure that the children of the billionaires are sitting in the desk beside the children where the parents are working minimum wage? Well, uh, that that would probably be a beneficial thing to happen, but it's not going to happen in a country that's as large as the United States is with as much difference in residential patterns as the United States has. If you are a wealthy family right now, you exercise choice, in essence, by moving to the suburbs where the schools are better. If you're a poor family, as we talked about earlier, you're confined to an inner-city area where the schools are lousy, and you're not allowed to put your child on a bus and send them out to that suburban school district where they can sit next to the children of the elite. I want to enable those children to be able to move out to that school that the elite are going to right now. If you're in Washington, D.C., and you are a politician uh, like President Obama was, you send your kids to to, uh, the uh, Sidwell Friends School, uh, which is a private school and where you get a very good education. Uh, if you're a poor family, you're in a lousy public school uh, that's spending a lot per student and not producing a, a very good education for your kids. I want to give everybody the same opportunity. Um, I mentioned the war on drugs, and you say basically curtailing it. Does that mean stopping it altogether or just maybe yeah. not, not <laughs> curtailing is yeah, ambiguous I, 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 in that I, I context but tell us together look uh, our criminal justice system uh, is uh, biased against the poor and people of color from top to bottom uh, and we need to radically rethink it how we handle everything from the way police interact with people on the street to sentencing to post uh, to post incarceration uh, dealing with people with criminal records and all of that mm-hmm. but part of that is that we lock people up for things that shouldn't be crimes in the first place you know it's not just the war on drugs it's the war against sex work uh, for women mm-hmm. it is the uh, it is the war on a whole bunch of other things let's not forget that Eric Garner who was killed in New York uh, was killed by the police for the crime of selling an untaxed cigarette and link that to, to the war on drugs or how essentially what would you do about that What's your vision of the future? Well, my my vision of the future is let's start with nationwide legalization of marijuana and other softer drugs, and let's investigate the legalization of, or at least the decriminalization of drugs across the board, Mm -hmm. while also enacting other criminal justice reforms. We need to look at how we treat uh, how we train police, uh, how they uh, how they treat people on the street. We need to look at how the prosecutors pr- uh, charge people and how they use coercive plea bargaining to force guilty pleas. We need mm-hmm. to look at sentencing uh, for different crimes and how those sentences are often uh, stricter for people of color than they are for uh, whites or affluent people. 
We need to look at how we treat people with criminal records and whether or not they are going to be able to get jobs in the future. Um, Michael, one thing I'm wondering, uh, was there a mistake made? Maybe there was a clerical error. Did you perhaps not join the ACLU by mistake? (laughs) Well, we often work with the ACLU on issues ranging from immigration to criminal justice reform. As I say, we don't fit neatly into that left-right paradigm. And if you were to look forward, and I'm sure you're going to hate the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you were looking forward to who might be in two or six years' time the next president of the U.S., I won't ask you to give me a name, but give me the characteristics that you would like to see. You know, I I would like to see someone who is not being driven by the extremes of their party, either the left or the right, someone who's open to new ideas, someone who wants to move beyond simple talking points to win the base and, and actually wants to get some legislation passed and accomplish something. Michael Tanner, it's been illuminating talking to you. Michael Tanner, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, just published a book called The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. Thank you very much for talking to me. Pleasure. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Michael Tanner at M. Tanner Cato. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. And thanks again to everyone who's signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as those people and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. You can also find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's March 11th, I'll be talking to Christian Toto about the politics of Hollywood. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.